0: You're listening to Engage Workface podcast, the 11th hour. This release is the second part of our recent event, Better Than Us, The Impact of Artificial Intelligence. We pick up with talk on driverless car technology and finish with audience Q&A and response from our panelists. I must include a content warning as the very last question involves physical love between technology and humans. If your children or your great aunt are within an earshot, you have been warned. Okay, I'll hand it over to um, Luke. Luke just had a couple of things to um, square from our last session and then we'll, we'll launch from there. So, over to you.
1: One, Thanks for being such a great audience so far. Loving seeing the <laughs> shocked looks on your faces. Um, but just wanted to cover very quickly just for a bit of technological literacy for us all. Um, some of the things that Tanya was talking about before, like Compass, the, um, looking at recidivism in data sets. There's other tools before that people have used for hiring the optimal candidate at their business or something like that all that these learning based AI um there's not all not all AI is based on learning but all these learning based models are looking for as correlations in data sets right we're not looking they're not looking for causations there are people working on that but most you'll find at the moment are looking for correlations so As Tanya was mentioning it's given all this data and it was all it found was what it saw to start with Um, and if there were biases in that that's what it saw that's what it gave back Um, saying is garbage in garbage out type thing Um, so just keep that in mind as we're talking more about these things um, that these machine learning models aren't generally optimized towards what we are looking for they're generally optimized towards what we give them
0: Yep, so you saying be careful about mm-hmm. seeing demons mm-hmm. in the soup sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, let's move on to driverless cars, seeing as we've got someone who's an expert in that area, which would be interesting. Um, whenever the, the topic of driverless cars comes up, um, there's this illustration of the trolley problem. So without sort of spending too long on it, can you just explain what is the trolley problem essentially? and, and what, why is it raised? What Why is it put up?
2: You've got the trolley problem there. Do you want to read it out? And no, no, I took it, it out oh, because okay.
0: I thought you'd explain it better. Well, I don't that.
2: like the trolley problem. <laughs> I think it's the wrong question. So, so we you, need to, we're, we're, we're talking what,
0: about something that no one, yeah, well, I'll some people Yeah, I'll tell you what the would. trolley
2: problem is. So the trolley problem is that there's a trolley car, if anyone knows what that is, which is you know a thing in San Francisco that runs on rails Correct. and tracks. Like a tram Um, but it's always called a trolley and that there's a fork in the in the rails and on one side there's uh, one young person tied across the track and on the other side there's ten people tied across the track and the question is always uh, which how are you going to program the trolley to take to kill the one young person or to kill the ten old people and and there's a whole lot of variations about this. What if these are ten nuns? What if this is your grandma? What yes. if this is a genius? What if these are you know etc etc. What now, if that
0: one's pregnant? What yeah, that, all
2: yeah, of that, that stuff. Right. And I think that's a wrong problem entirely because a um, why don't you just put the brake on? As someone said. Yes. Right. Why don't you just put the brake on? Or why don't you just run and untie the people off the track? Okay, that's another answer. Or be very careful about transferring a hypothetical problem from what we might call a closed system, where you're on rails, to an open complex system. So the way we, I think do about this, we have some
0: people here from Rail tonight too. So. Yeah,
2: and and you know there are there have been there have been fully autonomous trains operating around the world for quite a number of years. You may or may not know that, but. There are trains that are fully autonomous operating with lots of passengers and et cetera. Okay, so let's let's start from a different point because I think it's really important to start from a different point. $33 billion a year is what motor vehicle trauma costs Australia. And every year we have about 1,200 people who are killed and we have about 40,000 people who are seriously injured. And we have over 400,000 property damage claims and all the things that go along with that. And there's about 1.35 million people killed every year globally from motor vehicle trauma. So, if that's the fact, then my starting position is if we can use technology to reduce the number of people killed in motor vehicle trauma by 10%. 10 percent. We've saved 120 people in Australia. We've saved three billion dollars, you know potentially. So we already have in late model vehicles a number of advanced driver assistance systems, auto emergency braking, lane assist, um, rear and forward collision warning, um, a whole range of them that are already in cars on the road that make cars safer. So the data shows that electronic stability control in cars has reduced fatalities by about 25%, 24% I think. And the data also shows not only in Australia but in the US and in the UK that 93% of motor vehicle accidents are caused by human error. So the weakest link in any motor vehicle on the car any motor vehicle on the road right now is the human being. And in Australia, the data shows that most collisions are rear ends, so someone is not looking at what's in front of them. So my starting position is if we can use technology that can augment humans and make them safer drivers or make their vehicles safer for dangerous humans to operate, then why shouldn't we do that? Now. Okay, can,
0: can, I, can yes.
3: I? Is there any pushback on that from the panel? Uh, no, not pushback exactly, but just to bring it from another angle. I mean, we, we are facing, in, to some extent, a version of the trolley problem today because the AstraZeneca vaccine yes. causes blood Absolutely. clots. So, one in however many million people gets a blood clot. So, should you have the vaccine or should you pull it from the market? It's exactly the same question. Um, and I think the, the, the two kind of things to say about it are. Uh, ultimately, um, this is not an AI question, this is just a human question. I mean, these are, you can come up with theoretical questions that are impossible to provide a right answer for, yeah. you know? Would you run over your mum or your dad? Well, there's, yeah. no, there's no right answer, right? Um, yeah, that's right. I, I don't, we don't, it depends. If you need to talk about your relation with your parents, that's probably for another place. But, but that is, we can all come up with questions for which there's no right answer. Um, And then there's real-life examples, and this is why I actually have sympathy for politicians of any stripe, when people get grumpy at them because they can't solve questions for which there's no right answer. Like, you've given us a vaccine that causes blood clots. Well, okay, don't have it. What do you mean we can't have a vaccine? Like, there's there's no right answer. But I think the other thing we've tapped into there is, I I wonder if our intuition, rightly or wrongly, is towards the utilitarian uh, solution. That is, you spoke about... um, uh, reducing the number of fatalities by 10% or whatever it is, uh, that's great. And maybe if we transfer that back to the trolley problem, it'd be kill the one, save the 10. Um, so, or stop the car. Or, or stop the car. So that, that, that means there is a solution. That means there is a solution. And, and I think that's the difference because in the, yeah. in the driverless car space, you are looking at not having accidents rather than uh, having a different kind of accident or hurting a different person. So that's quite helpful. But I think it does, again, um, we're still tapping into that deeper question that's underneath, even as we discuss it. So let me
2: add to that then. So what we know in this country is that 60% of fatalities are uh, single vehicle crashes on rural, regional and remote roads, right? Now we also know that there is technology in vehicles right now that can track eye gaze, can track levels of arousal and can alert you when your eyes are not on the road or your, your um, biometric data shows that you're not paying attention. Now, the question then becomes, because this is, this is in this whole AI space, that data can be available to someone in real time, like the police, like the insurer, like the fleet manager, like the parent whose child is driving the P-plated car. Right? So, the question then becomes, is there a point where we say, because technology makes us safer, you're forced to use it? Right, Because if we we have that tipping point to say, this will make you safer, even a bit safer, but not entirely safe, you have to use it, then what does that mean for people that can't afford the technology, people that don't want to be tracked, people that are worried about where their data goes, or the fact that now their insurer will know that they've got really high blood pressure? And they're not taking medication, and so their premium for their health insurance goes up because of something that's happened in their car. So, you know, as we're thinking about all of these implications, Mm. it's more than just what we might put in that little box of artificial intelligence, it's the role of data that impacts our lives. Now, I'd be interested to hear what Vicky has to say about that, too.
4: I think you're touching on that tension between freedom and benefit there, you know, we, we have been willing to give up a certain amount of freedom because we receive benefits for it. Like, you know, Google doesn't store our photos for nothing. It collects a huge amount of data on us and we're, you know, we freely give them ourselves as a product to market, you know, just to give one example, like, you know there are so many areas of our life that we willingly cede freedoms but for gains sorry but yeah i i i i apply this in my own sort of teaching perspective like you know i i have the ability now with some of these analysis tools if i want to to sort of look at when my students are accessing their resources and how long they might be spending on them and, and all of these things. And should that be taken into account in, in the grades they receive when historically, you know, these students might've done equally well as, as students to which I wouldn't have had that information over. I, I just think it, it's trite, but sort of with all of this information comes a huge responsibility for how we choose to use it.
0: So I'm, I'm, I'm convinced I'm convinced that the car will do better than me if we get the t- technology right, but what happens if there's a cyber attack and everything goes haywire and then all the cars start smashing into each other and not stopping. Because when I drive my car I, I put it on the you know the automatic setting but I have this little you know fear in myself when I'm you know coming up behind another car and thinking oh is it going to break now? It, oh yes it did, thank, thank goodness it did. But what, what happens if you know, suddenly there's a cyber attack and everything goes haywire?
2: What does happen? What does happen? I mean, those of us in South Australia a few years ago when we had the, <laughs> the massive blackout, we all had to drive home with no um, traffic lights and there were no lights anywhere. You know, that, was a, that was an interesting wake-up call, I think, for people who are thinking about how we rely now on the infrastructure of our systems. Now, I would suggest to you that uh, that sort of cyber attack is one thing because it may well, uh, you know, if we have a fully automated, um, fully automated mobility network, potentially all the vehicles could default to stop. So that's what, that's what happens on some fully automated mine sites here. In, in Western Australia where they have fully automated mine sites and if anything goes wrong, all vehicles just default to stop. So, I mean, that, th- that mm. could be one way of thinking about it. But we... And so th- there's, a, there's a risk there that if something goes wrong, lives are lost. But there's that same risk with aviation now. We don't actually need human pilots to take off and land, um, some people would suggest, but we do for ourselves because we want to know that there's a human in control, but most of the time those vehicles are um, on autopilot. And what happens if all of our communications goes down? You know, what happens if there's a cyber attack on a hospital? So there are all sorts of levels of risk for human life.
3: That, that taps into something. I, I've been on a plane where the pilot has like walked down and got a cup of coffee, <laughs> and you, I know about autopilot, but I'm not sure I feel super great about this, um, uh, which is a human thing. But um, I mean, underlying all this there are a couple of big things, aren't there? Uh, one is the supposition that we could engineer a risk-free world, or we, we could we could create a world where uh, there, there'll be nothing will ever go wrong. Uh, be it through malicious intent, a cyber attack, or be it just through a glitch, like the power grid goes down because of whatever caused that to go down, um, it's a, you know it's a there's a, there's a cultural kind of um, push, you know, a pure sort of liberal push that suggests. I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that in a cultural sense. Uh, a sense that we human beings eventually can climb the mountain to utopia. We can fix every problem, we can, avert, we, we can avert every kind of natural disaster, we can do risk management so well that nothing will ever go wrong. And uh, uh, personally I'm of the view that um, we can do a lot in that direction and actually we should strive. We should always be striving to make the world safer and better and more prosperous and all those things. But if you ever buy that idea, that we can create a world where nothing will go wrong ever. I, uh, I think you've misunderstood how the world is. So, from a Christian perspective, uh, we hold to the view that the world is broken. The, w- the world is broken. There is something wrong with the world, and we're not going to engineer our way out of it. We're not going to risk assess our way out of it. We're not going to um, find some algorithm to get our way out of it. Uh, and, we, again, we might make great steps, but, but we have to, at some level, I think, eyeball that truth. We have to walk out and say, the world is broken. And we do this still now, don't we? Because we do it when um, our dear friend who's way too young has cancer. And we walk out and we think, the world is broken. Uh, And we do this when um, a member of our family, who we care about deeply, uh, gets arrested for a crime and we realize they actually did it. We think, the world's broken. Uh, So that, again, I'm all for improving things. And I think AI can help us in so many ways. But I want to do that within the frame of reality and I think a reality that most helps explains that for me is the world is a broken place.
0: So um, Vicky and Tim, this is a good segue to ask you this, but do you think technology for a lot of people has taken over where maybe religion was, you know, where they had some of their hope? You know, if they couldn't have it all here then maybe they got something down the track that they could hold out for as their hopes and dreams but now that seems like we're putting a lot of store on you know people like Luke and others to actually give us that which I I don't know whether I'd like to be in that position give me my perfect world
4: <laughs> yeah I mean traditionally you know the idea of a god whichever god you know it offers hope it offers this this way to be redeemed from that brokenness that that tim just described or you know this this way of elevating ourselves out of out of the present condition so you know in many cultures god is no longer the default option so if god isn't part of someone's worldview, then you know But we still have that i I still think that um experience that tim is describing of of acknowledging that things aren't the way they ought to be that something is broken you know that's still a pretty universal sense i think that we could be more than we are and we want to be more than we are and you know in many ways science and technology sort of hold the promise of delivering that and i think it's really interesting if we look at sort of the more speculative um, transhumanist, if we're going to go there, sort of visions of, of, of what humans might be, you know, often they appeal to this classical Christian language of transcendence or angels or becoming like God, or, you know, I've seen like activating God mode, and this kind of language is sort of replete with, with traditionally religious imagery. So there's some, some interesting convergences there, I think.
0: Yep, I think, uh, is it a Harari in his book, Homo Deus, is basically saying, we may be able to reach the point of being man-god, so to speak, you know, have have that divine uh, aspect to us. What what were you going to say to us?
3: There's a a kind of thread of thought that runs through uh, today's Western culture, which I think we all um, recognise when we see it, but perhaps need it pointed out to us and and named. Uh, Someone's used the language of scientism for it. Uh, Different to being scientific, or science, but scientism. And I, I actually have a, a definition of it here that I wrote down, which I think is really helpful. So that scientism is kind of a creed, or it's actually a, a set of beliefs that lots of people hold without realising. Uh, and it taps into what you're asking. And, and what scientism says is that only scientific knowledge is valid. Science can explain and do everything, and nothing else can explain or do anything. Science and reason, or scientific and rational, are coextensive terms. And I think lots of our culture swallows that. That is, we, we think that any problem, science will solve it. And again, I worked as a scientist at the CSIRO for how many years, did experiments, wrote papers, did what scientists do. I think science is a great tool, but there's lots of things it can't do. Mm, mm. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's a world with its own scope. It has amazing capacity, amazing potential. We've seen so much benefit from it. But if we think it's gonna solve every problem, we've kind of burdened science with being God, and look it just isn't it just isn't mm. it, it, it's part of the world but it's it's not all there is you yep. know
2: C- can I just make a comment yep. to that in the European Union they have something called the uh, GDPR the general data protection regulation now I- as part of that GDPR there is this thing called the right to be forgotten so it, and that is a there's a really interesting notion that that there is an opportunity to have all the stuff that's collected about you deleted so that someone is not forever keeping a record of every choice that you've made, every website that you've logged on to, every bad decision that you've made. And, that, and I think that follows on from what both Tim and Vicky are saying is that at what point do we need to have an opportunity to make mistakes and be forgiven for them. And and, and uh, Luke and I were talking during the break about some of the implications uh, for the um, software that I talked about in terms of predicting um, property settlements in relation to, to relationship breakdown. Now there's a huge data set at the moment and only a small number of people are using that. But as more and more people use it and that data that from their decision that's been predicted by this data set feeds back in, we have this closed loop that ultimately can then skew off to a particular way. And the example of that happening, of course, is the Tay bot that Microsoft set up, where they had this chat bot and they let it they let it run and they pulled it after about 48 hours or even less because it it became so toxic in terms of the sort of things that it was chatting about because the sort of data that had been in there. So I think just, and I'm sort of got, trying to bring a number of things together here is that we are more than our data. And we need to have an opportunity to say, I'm going to make a new choice or I'm going to make a new start. And I don't want to forever be defined by the data from my background. And I also want to have an opportunity for someone to show me mercy instead of just judging me. And I think that that is, a, that is a critical issue for us to think about here. What is the role of mercy? What is the role of forgiveness? What is the role of a clean s- slate and a new, slu- new start? So like a delete, context? really. Yeah, delete. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay.
0: Can Oh, sorry.
1: Luke. On that, I think we are straight away from the question a bit. Sorry, Craig. but. Um, That's a big conversation we have quite often at the Institute Next Door with our clients, our partners and so on, is a lot of them come to us talking about, you know, we could save so much time, we could automate our CEO if we could just make make, (laughs) um, decision-making AI and so on like that. But there is a big difference in these AI models in that, sorry, not in the model itself, but in how we apply them, whether we are looking for decision-making, decision-informing, decision-verifying, all these types of things. And then also, underst- like having an explainable AI, which is, you know, an open topic still, that tells you why it made the decisions it made, and all those sort of things. Mm. But um, they can also add parts to these models that do have time series implications. You know, if you did something yesterday, it's probably going to impact your decision tomorrow much more than it would if it was eight years ago, and things like that, and who you are as a person. And um, you're talking about sort of taking away like having the ability to remove your data from a data set or something or in in terms of those types of things if you could do that but the rest of the world is um, still relying on those AI AI tools all of a sudden you're getting an essentially random output about yourself is that going to be better or worse Um, I've you mentioned I I did winter school in um, Munich at the uh, Technical University of Munich and there was some social networking prog- uh, classes I did there that were, at the time at least, like I said, AI changes constantly. This is back in 2018. It's a million years ago at this rate. Um, if you deleted Facebook, they actually had a better idea of who you were than if you were on there. When you're on there and you're posting, you're producing your image of yourself, which is basically noise. We like to view ourselves as the ideal version or you know, if we have poor self-esteem, whatever, the terrible version, depending on the day, of ourselves, and we're adding all that noise into the system as compared to, you know, as that saying, you are the 10 people around you. Um, They can get a better idea of who you are from those 10 people around you. Sometimes if you delete Facebook, if you delete whatever, get rid of whatever data they have on you, they might actually help them. You might be less private. Mm. Um, So just all things to think about around this.
0: All right, look, a couple of quick questions. to wrap up this section before we go to Q&A. One, look, uh, I want to show a verse from the Bible which was quoted by Ros Pickard in her interview with Nick Bostrom. So both of them are in the AI um, area, so it's that Bible quote, if you can. Okay, it's not there? No, it's not coming up. I don't think it's on the other screen. That's okay, I'll, I'll read it to you. Um, so This is the quote from Ros. So Ros Picard is a Christian. Um, uh, I think Nick Bostrom is sort of, you know, uh, an agnostic. Um, Nick is interesting because he's come up with the idea of maybe we're in a giant simulation um, which he came out with in 2013 apparently. Um, So he's saying is this the real world? Is there another world beyond this one that we're actually a part of? we are just in this for a while. And then Ros is talking to him and they're, they're sort of banding about this. And then she does this quote from the Bible. She says, look, I'm really intrigued by this because in, um, there's a letter to the Corinthians church that was written. And there's this line in it where it says, we now see through a mirror, then we shall see face to face. We now know in part and then in the future know, know fully, even as I am fully known. So I think what she's getting behind that is, um, is there something behind my algorithms? Is there someone who put something in me? Because if we've got this artificial intelligence out here and everybody's looking at it, um, and they're saying, oh, someone put that together, then why aren't we saying that about us? So I'd be interested to hear what, particularly maybe Tim and Vicky, what you think about that comment from her?
4: I was going to do this. Um, look, I think the notion of knowing fully in that passage and whether that even refers to the the end times, I guess, or the future is, is, is a tricky one, so I won't get into that. Um, my general approach when looking at scriptures that that seem to talk about final matters is, to, is that to try to draw out particulars is maybe to miss the point. So this idea that you know, there will be a time in the future where we know everything, all will be revealed to us. Absolutely, I do imagine that greater insight into ourselves and our workings is going to be part of that picture. But I also wonder if you know, at that time, you know, maybe we'll be less preoccupied with those questions.
3: Yeah. What about you, Tim? Uh, Yeah. Look, I I think I probably would say similar things. Um, The verse. Uh, is from um, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. Uh, I think it's talking there about um, actually knowing God. It's not so much about us and us being omniscient like God. It's about us knowing God. Uh, And again, that takes us back to part of what I think is the the Christian understanding of what it means to be human. It's to be um, a being that has a particular capacity for a knowledge of the divine. but on the second point, the question of "Are we all, is, is this all the matrix, you know, is it a big simulation, and am I really just a brain in a lab somewhere? Um, I kind of, I hope this doesn't sound rude. Now that I've said that, it will. <laughs> it, is,
0: it is 50-50 out there in the research. So
3: just. Uh, I, I just find the question boring, because it's, it's just one of those questions that um, there's absolutely no evidence for whatsoever. It's just a kind of... I was at the pub one night with a mate, and I came up with "What if we're all brains in jars?" and we're taking that seriously now. Um, I just think, "Oh, okay." And at the the same time, "What if we are all brains in jars? What does that?" Or "What if we are all part of a great simulation? Some meta-programmer has made us think we're real people? What am I meant to do with that?" Um, As far as I know, that's not the case. I'm going to live my life as though that's not the case. I'm happy to have that conversation with someone at the pub over a beer and we'll laugh about it and then start talking about the footy. But I'm not sure I really want to enter it into the, the world of serious conversations about metaphysics and so on. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, look, a final question. Um, you might know that phrase deus ex machina, which we see on, you know, gym shirts and stuff like that, but apparently um, it is a Latin phrase and it means um, God from the machine and my, my when i did a little bit of looking at this it's apparently it was used on the stage in greek plays where they were trying to come up to a point where there was an unresolvable problem so they basically got the crane out and then someone who pretended to be god came down intervened in the middle of the play and solved the unsolvable so the question i imagine there's a number of people here saying you know why does christian faith persist In proclaiming that God, and and in this case Jesus, has to come in and intervene and be the circuit breaker in this world. Why can't we why can't we sort out ourselves? Why do we have to have that? Do you want
2: it, Vicky?
4: Yeah, I, I think you know, many of the great wrongs in the world are the very things that are getting in the way of us, sort of engineering or establishing any kind of utopia on our own. So The distinction i would want to draw perhaps between some of the more technological visions of glorification are that we'll just get there with the passing of time and and as we get smarter we'll somehow fix the the moral failings and, and the inequalities as we go but i think these are problems that that so far technological process brings enormous improvements but it's always also increased inequality uh, and that you know that's not defeatist at all uh, i think we're capable of all kinds of amazing feats but i'm not confident that we can just do away entirely with some of those sort of foundational failings on our own so that's where the circuit breaker comes in there seems to be this need for outside help okay
3: um, i think i'll probably reframe the or challenge the premise of the question slightly that is um uh if people say why does the christian faith you know, posit that when something's going wrong in the world or when there's a question we can't answer, we need to insert God because that'll solve it and, you know, it's kind of the, the fix-all for any issue you've got. Um, uh, I think that's a, a relatively shallow conception of what the Christian faith teaches uh, and it's, that's a conception that's very anthropocentric. That is, life's all about me and my community and my society and when I've got a problem, well, I better call on God and see how he fits in and solves it. Uh, I think a, a more sort of pure theological um, response would be to say uh, the Christian view is that, that that God is at the center that we're theocentric and the real question is not how does God fit into the gaps in my problem or my story but how do I fit into his story if, the, if there is a God that's a good question to ask if there is a, a higher being how do I fit under him and and fold into what he's doing and who he is rather than how can he be at my beck and call So,
0: like a bigger story
3: yeah, that, that's right, actually saying that I'm not the centre of everything, but perhaps he is. But, but on the other hand, to, to validate something that's in the question, I think um, this is, at some level, very much the Christian story. Uh, we spoke earlier about the world being broken, uh, and Christians don't just understand that as being at the level of um, people get sick and natural disasters and, you know, non-moral issues. But we actually think the biggest problem is the moral problem. The the biggest problem, actually, is that we have alienated ourselves from God through the various flaws that we carry in us, the ways we behave, part of our um, who we we always have been, and we need, like we spoke about before, some kind of reset, some kind of come back. And so the Christian story is Jesus is that reset. Jesus comes in, uh, offers us the clean slate, and shows us a different way to live that's better. Uh, Now, again. You can argue whether or not you believe the story. That's okay. Uh, and that's, that's Christians love to have that conversation to debate, you know, the truth claims here. But it, it's nonetheless a coherent story. It's a story that says we recognise the problem in the world. We look back in history at the claims of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and we say that is the problem. And that, if, if it's true, then that's a good solution. That's, in fact, we would say, Christians would say, that's the only solution. So I, I think that's, there's something that is um, precisely right in the question about the way that the the, the Christian worldview.
0: Right. Now, we've got questions coming in. Sorry, Luke, but we've got questions coming in, and I'm going to ask for one answer from one person now, okay? So, whoever wants to answer the questions. But we're going to go through them and give us a couple of sentences, and if you take too long, I'll move on. All right. (laughs) Consciousness is not the same as intelligence. Does that matter, and why? Who'd like to have a go at that?
2: I don't think either of them matter when we're talking about using created technological tools to achieve particular outcomes. I don't think the question is about consciousness or intelligence. I think both of those are human things.
0: Okay, next question. How concerning is it that much of AI is in private hands? What are the pros and cons of that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I can handle it, yeah. Um, To me, I think very. Mm. Um, if we're looking at the one, the major ones right now, Amazon and so on like that, there's uh, I think it's like a third of Amazon warehouse employees in the US are still getting off food stamps and so on. And it's getting the richer and richer they get, the harder and harder it is to regulate them, increasing wealth inequality in a close in a cycle, a negative cycle. So, yeah, I think that's my view.
0: Okay, next question: Does God keep data on us? How might that fit into fears for how governments, companies might be might keep data? So, I think there's a bit of a big brother thing here.
4: Look, I would want to come back to Tanya's uh, point that mercy is important. And, you know, whereas an algorithm might not be, have learnt the capacity for mercy or have the ability to discern where it might apply, you know, a God is is able to apply that and to, to see not just the, the correlations that Luke was talking about, but the causation as well and what, what is the motive behind.
0: Okay, all right, next one. Ooh, this is a bit of a long one, so I'll just read it out. I attended the second engineered safety symposium and the topic of AI, autonomous vehicles and human factors. When autonomy is taken off human drivers and they are purely in a supervisory role, they pay less attention and are less safe! There is a tension here. As technology gives an advance, there is often an unintended consequence. Something is often also lost. I'm thinking about me not being able to navigate anymore because of the tom tom. But um, anyway, um, what are your thoughts on this tension? What are the lines of responsibility in these autonomous vehicles when they go wrong?
2: Yeah, so this is, this is the classic uh, question around different levels of autonomy in vehicles. So a level five vehicle has no steering wheel, um, has no one doing the driving. The fully, fully autonomous vehicle has a person getting in, they are the occupant of the vehicle and they go in that vehicle to wherever it is that they're going. And so whether they're paying attention or not is neither here nor there. Uh, the, the late model vehicles on our road at the moment are what we call level two vehicles so they have from time to time things that take over from the human being for tiny moments like auto emergency braking and then level 3 is conditional automation where it might be automated in some domains high levels of automation is it's generally automated but the human could could has to take over at particular times my view on all of that is that you are not going to get uh, an insurance company to insure level 3 or level 4 vehicles in an open domain because of exactly those reasons that humans will lose their skill. Uh, that if they're not paying attention then suddenly have to take over an emergency, I think the risk is increased. And so I think what So
0: no barbershops on wheels.
2: No, there will be barbershops on wheels potentially, but there'll be no steering wheel. Okay. Right? And so I think I think thinking about the different levels of automation here addresses that human factors question. I think it's Highly problematic when we're talking about mixed fleet where we've got some that are some that are uh, partially or conditionally or highly automated and fully automated and human drivers but I think there are ways of dealing with that with closed domains you know etc etc but that's another big long conversation
0: okay well we can have that big long conversation <laughs> if they shout through a glass of red <laughs> um, all right what uh, what use are AI robots good if we still have wars and justice, do we need a new Geneva Convention before we have an AI Holocaust?
1: I don't know why I'm raising my microphone to this one. Um, I think I would start with the fact that not every salute, like, not every change, is going to solve every problem. Um, just because we have improvement doesn't mean we are perfect, as Tim was saying before. Um, Some of these things, like they are freeing up time for us to tackle some of those other problems. I know when, if we get to that stage five automation, I'm not gonna be buying a car, I'm gonna be rolling just out of bed, just go sit in the back of a car that's popped up at my house that can take me to work, the whole time we'll be working on problems that maybe contribute to that. The autonomous vehicle itself might not be solving these problems, the AI robots of other sorts might not be, but maybe some of us have to, like a few of us don't have to be, Doing much like what we term as um, more like lower level tasks, and we can be focusing on the bigger problems. Um, throughout history, that's what um, technological development, innovation has allowed us to do. Uh, so, I talked just before to Dan from Stern and Chalk about you know 300 years ago, most of the world was what we now can consider in poverty. Um, so, yeah, solving one problem isn't necessarily getting perfect straight away, but we're getting closer.
2: I have to add something here. Sorry. Um, autonomous weapons is a thing huge amounts of money is being invested in fully autonomous weapons I personally have sat in sessions where um, advocates of fully autonomous weapons have said it's going to make our battlefield safer we're reducing literally we are reducing the fear the adrenaline of young soldiers who are terrified who can't identify the assailant and so having an autonomous weapon in their platoon is going to make everyone safer um, there, is, there is a lot of, dis- of discussion about the role of autonomous weapons. There are a lot of international bodies working on that. And to sound a down note for a minute, I think uh, it is something that every person in a civil democracy should be concerned about. Okay,
1: one bit of information on that I'm not going to go into details on this, but uh, the UN came out with a report a couple of weeks ago Suggesting that they believe the first autonomous weapon has been used in combat within the last couple of years Just just people to look at I'm not going to name names or anything.
0: Well, we've got a fun question to finish with here Um, I can't do all the questions. There's quite a few Um, But My wife said don't whatever you do don't get near this topic Um, But it's come up as a question so um, what about love?
2: Can oh, can I answer can, that one? Can, uh, <laughs> can,
0: can I didn't go near it. Uh, can AI replicate love? Love seems critical to deep human relationships. What about it? You know? let's,
2: let's not talk about love, let's talk about sex, <laughs> right? Oh, this is Because, the... because there are... Se- I've just supervised a wonderful student, Maddie, her name is, who's done a brilliant thesis on the legal implications of sex robots. So right now there are robots that have skin that you can program a particular temperature. It feels like human skin. It has all the necessary orifices, and you can, you can design it and order it to look like a particular thing. You can order it to respond to you in particular ways, in, in terms of how it might moan or laugh or whatever. Just a few more minutes. <laughs> right? So have I got your attention? Now, when we think about technology being used for something as intimate as sex between two human beings, immediately many of us could say, oh, that's, that's awful, right? That's awful, that shouldn't be allowed. And in, in Australia, childlike sex dolls are prohibited, but adult ones are not. But then I'm just gonna flip that around and say this, what if you are a person with a serious disability, who is not in a relationship, who has no way of um, getting your sexual desires met, is that okay, right? Or or are we forever saying that there is something so human about a particular thing, i.e. having sex, that we are never allowed, we're never going to allow humans to have sex, if, it, if in fact it is sex, with a machine. And then I'll flip it around another way and say, if we do allow that, right, then what does that mean for how humans start to interact with each other? And what does that mean for whether we think we have a right to program our interactions with each other? So every way you look at something like this there, are, there is always more than one perspective and some of the perspectives are really surprising and some of them are really worrying.
0: Now there's a, an interesting book review on the Engage Work uh, Faith website on uh, Machines Like Us I think it's called which is about a dilemma around this but um, uh, I, no I won't, uh, I won't ask the rest of <laughs> the panel for any ideas on this. Um, okay. Can
4: I just come in? I, I promise it it will take it a different direction. <laughs> um, look, you mentioned machines like us, and I think you know the question, and and it's not just romantic love. It's can you know can they love like family or friends as well, uh, be companions? And I think the honest answer is we don't really know, but we hope so, because how much of our fiction sort of takes up these protagonists and presents them in a really empathetic light, and it, it certainly seems like. I hope of ours that, that the case
0: okay all right well i think we'll, we'll leave it there Can you the panelists tonight?
1: you've been exploring how faith and work overlap on the 11th hour podcast check out our website engage work faith .org.au to find resources on the topics we cover and keep up to date with our latest events. Thanks for joining us on this episode.